Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter number 6. I'm on the horns of a dilemma this morning. I've got more to say than what you want to hear. And so uh, we have to strike a balance, and to do that, I, I hate the word compromise, but, uh, but maybe we can use it in the good sense. If you'll be patient, I'll try to be as brief as possible. And uh, so, Luke chapter number 6. While you're turning there, let me say uh, just a few words uh, by way of introduction. And this is actually a very strange introduction uh, to the message today, but it is very fitting if you stop and think about it. Nearly everyone is familiar with the story of Jonah. Even all of the little kids know about Jonah, at least something about Jonah. But I'm really convinced that very few really understand what the story of Jonah is all about. Uh, you know, even though folks can rehearse all of the facts, you know, and give the details, they sometimes don't really have a clue as to what the main point of the story really is. And I don't know, have you ever just stopped and thought about uh, what is God trying to teach us from the book of Jonah? Well, what's it all about? What's the bottom line? Now, there are a lot of different lessons that can be learned from the book of Jonah, but uh, I'm convinced that the main purpose of the book of Jonah is to teach us about God's love, and that we are to emulate his example. He wanted Jonah to see Nineveh like he saw Nineveh. And by the way, it's exactly the same thing that God wants for us. God loves the world. God expects us to, to do the same. And, and you will notice and remember, no doubt, that he includes even our enemies in that group of people that we are to love. Now, when you look at the book of Jonah, it's like a drama. And as you know, most theatrical productions in a, in a drama, uh, it always usually at least ends well. You know, the good guy gets the girl or the Bad guy is captured and the problem is solved and what have you. But when you get to the end of the story of Jonah, it just, well, it leaves you wondering. You know, God made his point and, and, and then we're left to wonder how Jonah actually responds to that. But the real question is not so much what Jonah did or didn't do. The real question is how will we respond to what God wants in our life. I think the strangest part of Jonah's story is that God, he had more problems with Jonah than he did with Nineveh. And, 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 you know, and sometimes the same thing is true of us. God is trying to get us to do certain things and we don't want to do it. And, you know, we don't want to do it because, you know, well, we say, well, you know, that's just not something that we care about or whatever. I love what old J. Vernon McGee said many years ago. He said the true motive for missions is this. 
He says, God never asked us to take the gospel to every creature because we love them, but we're to take the gospel to every creature because He loves them. We need to think about that. It's not because you love people over there across the ocean somewhere that have never heard the gospel and you love them so much you don't want them to die and go to hell. You don't even know those people. I mean, if all you do is based on what you love, you won't end up doing very much. So it's not a matter of whether or not we love the people. It's a matter of whether God does or not. Now, I mention this for two reasons. Number one, because tonight we're going to be starting a series of messages and go all the way through the book of Jonah and study that. The second reason is because it relates to the message here this morning. And the message this morning here from Luke chapter number 6 is very similar to a message I preached a few weeks ago from the book of Matthew in chapter number 5, where it talked about the fact that we are to love our enemies, we are to bless those that curse us, do good to those that hate us, we are to pray for those that despitefully use us and persecute us. And so, you know, that explains what we are to do. But this morning, we're going to look at something that I think uh, describes why we do what we ought to do. And it reminds us here that, uh, that God wants us to do these things because this is exactly what God has done for us. God has treated us this way, and so... God is saying, that's the way I want you to treat others. Now, with all of that in mind, I want you to look at verse number 31. Verse number 31, and this is something everybody, again, is familiar with. And the Lord says, And as ye would that men should do unto you, do ye also to them likewise. Now, we generally call that the golden rule. Some people have it on plaques in their home, and that's well and good. I would rather think of it as the Redeemer's rule. And we need to remember that this is a rule, a command that God Himself has given us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that all of God's Word is true. All of the Bible is important, but there are some parts that are of greater practical value than other parts of the Bible. And so here is a command that is simply stated, that we're to do unto others as we would want them to do unto us. It doesn't get any more simple than that. So it's simply stated, but it's seriously needed, and it's sadly neglected. And before we really get into the meat of the message, I want to make three observations about this. And the first one is that when I think of this rule that the Redeemer has given, it makes me aware of my Christian duty. And I say that because this is a summary of the law concerning man's relationship with man. It is an expression of my social responsibility It's a principle by which my conduct ought to be regulated. 
It is so very important that whenever it is stated in Matthew chapter number 7 in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and this particular text comes from the Sermon on the Plain, but the message is the same, and the point of it is that whenever it was stated there, it talks about that all of the law and the prophets are summed up in this one thing. In other words, this is an expression of the whole of our responsibility. Now, I want you to think about that, and I wish I had time to go over to Matthew chapter 23, where he talks about the first and great commandment. And remember, he tells us the first and great commandment, of course, is to love God. Secondly, it's to love others, right, as we love ourselves. And again, he emphasizes that that is the law of love. That's the law of the prophecy. In other words, that's everything about God's law all summed up in one ball of wax. So do you see how all of this ties together, how it all relates? That whenever he tells us that we are to do unto others as we want them to do unto us, that is that we just by nature, you know, we care about ourselves and pamper ourselves and take care of ourselves. And the Lord's saying, that's the way I want you to treat others. This is making us aware of our Christian duty. Secondly, it awakens It awakens me to my personal needs because the way we treat others is a reflection of our love for Christ, that whenever we love Him as we should, we'll love others as we ought. And so if I neglect others, then that becomes an indictment against me, not against them. Because I can look, always look at some flaw in their character and say, well, you know, I would love you, but you don't measure up to God's standard nor my expectation, and so consequently, I'm going to limit the amount of my love for you. I'm never at liberty to do that. And so I am to love everyone, even my enemies, and so this awakens me to my personal need because it it, it makes me realize that there's something amiss in my life and something required that is above and beyond what I am able to do in my own strength. And then that leads to the third observation I want to make, and that is when I think of this, it makes me ashamed. Because this brings me face to face with my failure. It reminds me that too many times I've been too selfish. Too many times I've been too unconcerned about other people. Can you imagine what a different world this would be if everyone put this simple rule into practice? Wow, what a change that would make. Now, I know that's more than what we can expect from the world, right? We don't expect that from the world because... You know, not knowing Christ is their Savior, they're not able to live up to the standard of His expectations. So, you know, we don't expect it from the world, but God certainly expects it from His children. And although we are in the minority, there is enough of us, if we would put this into practice, it would make a noticeable difference in our community and everywhere we are because this touches every area of our life, whether you're a child, whether you're a parent, whether you're an employee or an employer, whether you're a guest, whether you're a host, a student, a teacher, a husband, a wife, it makes no difference. Every area of our life is to be governed by this. So the point is that we need to put ourselves in the place of others. We need to ask 
What would I want the other person to do for me? In other words, do unto others as though you were the others. That's the point. The problem is we don't think that way by nature. By nature, we have our focus on one person, and that's self. Now, when we trust Christ as our Savior, that gives us the potential to look beyond ourselves to the needs of others. The potential is there, but we don't always do that. And so this is the problem because sometimes we are selfish, sometimes we are stubborn, and even though that we know what we ought to do, we're not as generous and gracious to others as we ought to be. So that's the problem. But notice this precept and how simple it is because you just ask yourself, what would I want others to do? Well, I I, I want people to love me. I, I think you want that, right? You know, I can remember when I started out preaching, I, you know, I, I, boy, I just took so much pride in saying, you know, I don't care what you think of me. You can like it or lump it, take it or leave it, and blah, 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 you know. You better care what people think about you. If you want to make an impact on their life, if you want to be of any help to them and minister to them, it makes a difference what they think about you. And I'm not talking about just putting on the airs, you know, in order to impress them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being real and genuine and transparent and honest in your dealings with them and actually loving them to the extent that it makes an impression in their life. So I want people to to love me. I want people to love me in spite of my faults because I know I've got a lot of faults. And, you know, if love was just going to be based upon the measure of our conduct... You know, I can see why there's no reason for anybody to love me or for me to love anybody because we've all got faults. So I want people to love me in spite of my faults. I want people to forgive me when I've done wrong. I want people to encourage me whenever I'm discouraged. I want people to give me a pat on the back when I succeed. I want them to be patient with me when I fail. I want them to help me if I'm in need. I want to, you know, I, I want them to be a friend to me whenever I'm lonely. Look, isn't that what you want? Of course it is. Because, listen, human nature never changes and human needs never vary. The very thing that I need and I desire are the same things that you need and you desire. So that's true of all of us. So none of us have to wonder what we would want other people to do unto us. So whatever it is you want others to do unto you, the Lord says, that's what I want you to do unto them. Now, Looking at the specifics of this, I want you to notice that this requires several things. If I'm going to keep this command, if I'm going to obey the Redeemer's rule for my life, it requires, number one, humility. I'll never do this if I think I'm better than you. If I think in some way that I am superior, some way that I am better, some way that I am more deserving than you are, I'll, I'll, I'll never be willing to reach out to you and, and help you. Humility is at the very heart of servanthood. If we're going to have a servant's heart, we've got to be humble. We've got to realize 
that we are no better, no more deserving than anyone else. Now, you might have a better education, a higher IQ. You might be better than other people in a lot of different ways, but you are not a better person than they are. You're not more deserving than they are. And we, we've, we've got to get a grip on that, folks, because we will never be able to fulfill our obligation to God as long as we have pride in our hearts. So it takes humility. Secondly, if I'm going to fulfill this command, it means that, that I have to have understanding. I have to understand how the other person feels. I have to understand what the other person's needs might be. In other words, is he hungry? Is he fearful? Is he afraid? Is he lonely? You know, is he discouraged in some way? So I can't reach out and help someone unless I allow myself to get close enough to them that I understand what they need in their life. And once I discover what they need and I have a spirit of humility to where I realize I'm no better than they are, then I'm to respond to that need by doing what I would want them to do for me were I in the same situation. It takes humility. It takes understanding. But it also takes sacrifice because if we're going to meet the needs of somebody else, that means that we have to be willing to give up something. Many years ago, I read something and jotted it down in my Bible that, uh, that I, I think makes the point well. It says, we must learn to give of our luxuries to supply the comforts, the comforts to supply the necessities, and even our necessities to supply their extremities. Now, you think about that for a little while, and especially that last one, because that's where, you know, that we generally really come to the end of our rope. That's where we generally fail, because when it gets down there to giving up something that's not a luxury to me, but something that's really a necessity in my life. And that's when real true sacrifice begins. When I give up something that I need so you won't need it, that's sacrifice. You know, giving is one thing. Not all giving is sacrificial. You, we can give out of our abundance and that's well and good. I'm not criticizing that. We can give out of our abundance. That, that's giving, but it becomes sacrificial giving when we give to the extent that now I'm doing without, so that person won't have to do without. And I think we would all agree we don't see a whole lot of that going on in the world today because generally we just simply don't care enough to deprive ourselves of what we want and what we need in order to supply the needs of others. And then that requires also not only humility and understanding and sacrifice, but it requires an unconditional love on our part. That we have to love others' faults and all because if we love, listen... If we love only those who love us, the Lord tells us in verse 32 that we're no better than the Pharisees. Notice he says, For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also 
do even the same. And if you lend to them uh, of uh, whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. So the Lord is saying we're no different from the world if all we do is to minister to those that that love us. If all we do is minister to those that help us in our time of need. So we've got to go beyond that. We've got to treat others as we want to be treated. And, and to do that, I have to accept them as they are. They might not be what they ought to be, but neither am I. I have to accept them as they are. I have to attempt to understand them. I have to abstain from hurting them. I have to assist them in their need. I have to appreciate what they do, affirm my love for them, apologize to them when I'm wrong, and appropriate God's help in all of this. But it takes that unconditional love on my part in order to do this. And I'm no different and no better than anybody else out there in the world if I reserve my love and only offer my help to those who love me back and help me. So notice it requires at least those four things that I've mentioned, humility, understanding, and sacrifice and unconditional love. Because if we don't, if we don't have those things, we're never going to fulfill this rule that Christ has given us. Secondly, it not only requires several things, but it reveals something. Look at verse number 35. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but love ye your enemies and do good to them and lend hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest for he is kind even unto the unthankful and to the evil. Now notice he says, ye shall be the children of the highest. And we've already talked about it, and you understand that this is not saying that this is the means whereby we become a Christian. We don't become a child of God because we do this, but rather we manifest the fact that we are a child of God because we do that. So what does it mean then if I'm not doing that? If I'm not keeping this rule, if I'm not doing unto others as I would that they do unto me, what does that mean? Well, it simply means that there's then no evidence that I am a child of God. And that's a part of our problem because we keep wanting everybody to believe that we are real, genuine Christians when there's no evidence for it. We say we're a child of God, that we love the Lord, that we're going to heaven, and there's no evidence for it. Because if we really did, we would do exactly what He has commanded us. Look, this is the rule that Jesus Christ Himself lived by. And that's what He expects from us. Whenever we think about Him, it's obvious that Jesus never did just enough to get by. Boy, we do. We, be, we, we, we become experts at that. Just enough to get by. Just enough to keep people off of our back. Just enough so that we won't be embarrassed. Jesus didn't live that way. He went the extra mile. He was someone that was willing to put his, his comfort second. 
In other words, he never put his comfort ahead of the needs of other people. He never held grudges against other people, but was always forgiving. He never returned evil for evil. He was always kind. He never neglected his responsibilities. He always did the Father's will. You don't have to just take his word for it. The Father said so. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he tells us that he did those things that are pleasing in the sight of the Father. If that was the rule that Jesus lived by, that's the rule that you and I ought to be living our life by. Not in order to become a child of God, but rather to reveal to others that we really are God's children. So the Redeemer's rule then requires several things and reveals something, but then also it results in some things. Number one, it brings out the best in others. People will respond to kindness when they won't respond to anything else. I've seen situations where... You know, people were angry with one another, and I've seen their attitude change overnight as a result of one good deed. Just one kind act, and overnight everything everything was changed. Why? Because people just naturally respond to love. If they don't respond to love, they're not going to respond to anything else. You can threaten them all you want. And you can hold out a standard there and preach to them till you're blue in the face that what you're doing is wrong, it is a sin, God's going to judge you for it, and on and on and on. And they'll never respond to that alone. That might be important to a measure But that's not the thing that's going to break their heart. Remember, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. If it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, then it's the love from a child of God to somebody else that will convince them that we are who we claim to be and they need that same Christ in their life. You see, whenever we do good one to another, it always brings out the best. In others, the problem is so many times when we fail to do as we should, what does it do? Well, it brings out the worst in the other person, and things get worse instead of better. And so, think about that for a minute. As a Christian, you have you have it within you. You have the power to raise another person's life up to a higher level of living. You have that power within you. By doing unto them as you want them to do unto you, and they respond to that love, and as a result of that, they're now raised up to a higher level of living, and and it changes them. But notice there in verse 35 and on down, it also brings you a reward. And that's why I keep saying you're always best to yourself when you're good to others. You want to do yourself a favor? Do something good for somebody else. 
And it'll come back because the Lord says, Great is your reward in heaven. Our labor in the Lord is never in vain. So it brings you a reward. It raises them up to a higher level of living and changes them. But the main thing about it, folks, is this, and that's the fact that it pleases God. And isn't that our main purpose in life, to please Him, to glorify Him? That means that I need to stop worrying about whether or not people are deserving. I'm not proud of it. But since I was a little boy, I guess, I've had that dirty, hairy mentality, you know. Just go ahead and make my day. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You throw a firecracker at me, I'm going to burn the house down. You know, that. I'm sorry, I'm just telling you that that's my old sinful nature. I'm just bad. I, just, uh, that, that's the way I am by nature, and... And boy, I'm telling you what, when God saved me, He, wow, He, he just changed everything all around because uh, He changed my attitude. And that's not to say that I don't ever fail, but what I'm saying is there's so many times that whenever somebody does something wrong toward me or uh, someone that I love or the church that I love, my initial response is that I don't want to talk to them. I want to hold them at arm's length. I don't want to look at them. I don't want to talk to them. That's just the way that my old sinful nature uh, tries to control me. Now, now, maybe you're beyond that. You know, maybe you don't ever have that problem. But, but I'm confessing sometimes I, I do. And listen, listen to me. The Bible says a man's enemy shall be they of his own household. Sometimes we treat our own family members that way. They don't live up to our expectations. They don't meet our needs. They don't respond as we think they ought to respond. You know, blah, blah, blah. And what do we do? We put up that barrier. And we block them out. Just like some of you have done to some of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ right here in the church. You've got a barrier between you and them. Regardless of what it is, there's something that you don't like, something that you don't approve of, something somewhere that has caused you to erect this wall and you are not about to let that other person in. And it might be because that person is living an exceedingly sinful lifestyle. And you're thinking... Because of the way they're living, they don't deserve my attention, my time, my kindness. No, they don't, and neither do you. We've got to stop worrying about whether or not people deserve anything. That doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is will this or will this not be pleasing to God? That's the only reason why we ought to be kind to others. And I think every one of us ought to examine ourselves regarding this rule because we seem to see everybody's faults but our own. We complain about others, you know, not, not treating us right. Even though we're guilty of doing exactly the same thing to them or to somebody else. You know, that proves that we know what we ought to do, right? 
We know what we ought to do because we get mad when people don't do that to us. But then we usually excuse ourselves, cut them off, don't give them any slack. Let me tell you, because kindness is not received doesn't mean that it ought not to be extended. Just because you didn't get it doesn't mean that you shouldn't give it. There's so many times we try to justify our unkindness by saying, you know, something like, uh, well, you know, I've been mistreated. Other people have been unkind to me. And it's the old idea that, you know, hurt people hurt people. And so I've been hurt, and because I've been hurt, I'm justified in being unkind toward other people. Really? Really? Do you realize some of the most gracious and kind people on the earth are people that have been hurt, people that have difficulties in life, people that have been treated unfairly, and they finally woke up to the fact and got their heart right with God and decided, I don't want to hurt somebody else like I've been hurt. In other words, their hurt motivates them to want to help somebody instead of trying to hurt somebody because they've been hurt. You see, the problem is never between you and the other person. The problem is always between you and the Lord. Because when our heart is right with the Lord, we'll stop blaming others And we'll begin ministering to them, not because they deserve it. We'll begin ministering to them, doing unto them as we want them to do unto us, because that's exactly what Jesus did. And we love Him, and because we love Him, we want to please Him. And you see, and that's why I started where I did. God is saying to Jonah... He's saying, Jonah, I want you to see the Ninevites like I see them. You see them as your worst enemy. You don't want to go there. You don't want to help them. You're afraid of them, in fact. You don't want anything to do with them. Boy, when we get down to that last chapter in the story about the gourd, and oh, he is so happy. He's finally, he's finally, his skin has been all bleached out and and as a result of that, now he's in the shade and so comfortable at last. And then God sends a worm and it destroys the gourd and the shade is gone. And the prophet's belly aching again, complaining again. And the Lord rebuked him. Shouldn't, shouldn't you be have been so concerned about all of those Children in Nineveh, all of those children that would have perished, shouldn't you have been more concerned about them than you are about whether you've got a little spot of shade on earth or not? You see, again, I say, it's never about you and your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad or your kids. It's never about you and the other person. It always gets back to the fact that when we love God as we ought to love God, we'll love others as God commands us to do. 
Whenever I think about this and I realize that week after week after week we have a service. I was sitting there before before I got up here and just praying to myself, Lord, help this to not be just an everyday, ordinary kind of service. Lord, do something unusual, something unexpected. You know, accomplish accomplish your will in this service today because so many times we get in a rut and we just become content with nothing happening. We sing the songs, we preach the message, we have an invitation, the service is over and we go eat and that's it. I would hope that we'd hope for something more and different than that. Whenever I, look, when I think about the Redeemer's rule that we've been talking about this morning, and then and then we, and notice I didn't say you, I said we. When we sit back and act like we don't have anything that we need to repent of, we just get up and walk out of the building and go have lunch. I, I don't I don't I don't know whether it makes me feel like that whether I want to laugh or whether I want to cry. Because it's not only heartbreaking, it is, it's a sick kind of a humor for us to think we don't have anything to repent of, nothing we need to get right with God, knowing how we treat each other. I don't know whether I want to laugh or cry, but, but I know exactly how God feels about it. Because it just so happens in Revelation chapter 3, there was another church there that had a similar problem. They said, we're rich indeed. We don't have need of anything. We've got our act together. We don't need to repent of anything. We don't need to change anything. Everything's all right. Have the benediction. Let's go eat. And to put it in everyday language, God simply said, you make me sick to my stomach, I want to puke. Now, that's not the exact words. He's, he's a, little, a lot kinder than I. He said, you know, he said, I want to spew you out of my mouth. But think about us allowing ourselves to be in a condition where instead of pleasing God, that God says, you make me want to vomit. Well, I'll I'll let you be the judge of what the Lord might think about your life. You don't judge mine, and I won't judge yours, but I'm telling you, every single one of us here this morning, we need to think about whether or not we're really being honest, whether or not we're keeping the Redeemer's rule. Because if we're not, we already know what the Lord thinks about it. Let's stand. Father... Speak to our hearts this morning. I pray that there not be one single person that will leave this service today without making an honest evaluation of their lives. Help us, Heavenly Father, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to see deep into those inner recesses of our heart, those things that we've swept aside and covered up and tried to forget about, those things that we've ignored maybe because of the embarrassment of confessing our failure, but for whatever reason, may the Holy Spirit not allow us to 
to be comfortable in our sin. And I just pray that you'll convict our hearts. And Lord, that you'll break down the barriers and destroy those walls. And help us, Heavenly Father, this morning that we will respond to your command. That we will leave here today determined that by the grace of God, we will obey the Redeemer's rule that regardless of what others have done to us, we're going to do unto them like you did for us. We're going to love them unconditionally. For we beg it in Jesus' dear name. Amen. While we stand, as we sing together, if the Lord's speaking to your heart this morning, you don't have to say anything to me, but I hope you'll do business with Him. Have thine own way.